You're listening to the USCA official podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of eventing, covering all the big events, professional tips and tricks, interviews, special guests, and the latest USCA eventing news. Welcome to the USCA official podcast and listeners, we have got the start of a brand new series because this year, a new class will be joining the eventing legends that currently make up the USCA eventing hall of fame. It is basically, it is the highest honor awarded within the sport of eventing throughout the US. And today's guest is our first inductee from 2022. And we're looking to celebrate and hear more about what is, quite frankly, the most extraordinary career. And I'm so excited to hear just how this lady has revolutionized, has paved the way for the sport of eventing throughout the US. It is none other than a lady who was the event director at Kentucky for over 20 years. She headed up the eventing at the venue for the World Equestrian Games back leading up to 2010 as well. She has had so many more roles that does not do her justice. Janie Atkinson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it is our absolute pleasure. So first Hall of Fame inductee for 2022, and we're looking forward to hearing more about your story. So let's rewind Right back to the beginning, tell us a bit about your background and where your love of horses came from. Well, no one quite knows where my love of horses came from. Neither <laughs> my parents were, brother was has never been interested, uh, but I apparently I was born with it. I did have a great uncle who liked horses, but that was about it. But apparently I was born with it. They said that, you know, one of the first words coming out of my mouth was horse and I, my first horse ride was at three, and my parents always said, boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> and uh, so I just always loved them. And in high school, in the high school newspaper, do a little article on seniors as they were coming along. And my thing was I wanted to work for the Blood Horse magazine in Lexington, Kentucky, which was a weekly thoroughbred magazine still going. And in fact, and so I went to college at the University of Kentucky, and they had a horsemanship program. Now, my first horse I got when I was 16, and it was American Saddlebred. She was five-gated. And I showed her, and everybody goes, oh, my goodness. But I, And the American Saddlebred breed was created in Kentucky, in Fayette County, which is Lexington, and Mercer County, which is Harrodsburg. So here, my little... Six-year-old Saddlebred and I go down to the University of Kentucky. I worked very long and hard to get the money to get her down there. And the horsemanship instructor where she was boarded and the UK University of Kentucky horsemanship instructor was a retired Norwegian cavalry officer. So you can imagine what he, what kind of riding he did and he taught. That's where I was introduced to eventing and dressage because that's what he taught. And this little five-gated mare had to say, okay, guess I'll do that too. And <laughs> she changed into a, an event horse or a champion event horse, but because I was still learning, I didn't know what the sport was. I'd never jumped before. So that's how my introduction to eventing and went through college, went to graduate school in New Jersey in equine nutrition, because at that time, that's all you could get a master's in. 
uh, not my favorite equine interest. And then I graduated, came back to the from graduate school, came back to the to Kentucky. I think I I have bl- Kentucky blood in me, so that's another of the reasons probably that I like horses and that I like Kentucky and worked for the veterinary science department with a gentleman, a very intelligent gentleman who was the one who brought the English lighting of stalls in the fall for mayors to bring them into heat earlier. Uh, And he popularized that here in this, in Kentucky, in the breeding area of Kentucky. So after that, there was an article in the Chronicle of the Horse, which is, as you probably know, our weekly Bible. Uh, and I still get it in print form because I'm a I major started out majoring in journalism. And um, I read there that the American Horse Council had been created, a trade association, um, for because there was punitive tax legislation that they formed this trade association in Washington D.C. to combat, which they successfully did. And I, in May or June of 1970, I went to work for them saying, hello, you need me because you don't want to be just thoroughbreds or standard breads or racing. You want to represent everybody. And so I was hired as the person who was everything but racing. And in that In 1969, however, and I'll go over this uh, with you again, um, there had been fires at at horse farms and thoroughbred breeding farms in the area, and they had closed to tourists, which was was and still is one of the biggest Kentucky income producers is tourism. And it's because of the horse industry and people coming to the horse farms. So they were closing the horse farms because of these fires, and they never did find out who set them or why. And they then, John Gaines of Gainesway Farm, one of the leading thoroughbred breeding farms in the area, proposed to one of our legislators that the state should then create a model thoroughbred horse farm so that people would have this to visit. The legislation passed in January of 1970, and the news came out about it. And I, of course, was at the American Horse Council at the time. And several of the trustees of the American Horse Council, the original trustees, were either Kentucky legislators or thoroughbred breeders, Kentucky thoroughbred breeders. And so I shared with those people because I was never shy to, I was a shy person, but never about horses. Because all my life, never having one until I was 16, I read everything there was about any kind of horse and rode anything anyone would put me on. So I, I said, this can't be this, you know, I think of Kentucky, I don't just think of thoroughbreds, I think of horses, period. So I wrote this six-page letter to the governor of Kentucky, and these gentlemen backed me, because that's why they'd hired me, was to be the whole thing. And sure enough, the governor changed the, uh, the direction of it and the Department of Parks, which this park was going to be under at the time. So that's how the park came to be with more than just a thoroughbred horse farm, because it would have tanked very shortly. Nobody would have paid to come see that. And so it was to cover everything. There was going to be a museum, which is still there and is one of the best in the world. And anybody who goes to the horse park must see that museum. Um, because anybody who thinks they knows every know everything about horses doesn't. 
because there's so many different breeds and different activities. And um, so the horse park started being constructed in 1972. And at that time, I had returned to Kentucky to work for the Blood Horse magazine, which is thoroughbred racing magazine weekly that's still going on. And I was waiting because I had been, it had been shared with me that a state horse council comparable to this American Horse Council was being constructed or was being built by legislature. And I wanted to be the executive director of it. And so it came about by legislation and I was hired as the executive director. And just because I was there and nobody else knew about it really. And I was at the time a consultant with the thoroughbred breeders of Kentucky. And that was where my little office was or my little desk. And that was in September 1974. Well, that year was when the world championships were at Burley. And I was at a horse trials with my horse and a gentleman uh, named Andrew, Captain Andrew DeCine, who was a retired Hungarian cavalry officer, was one of the judges. And I knew him because he judged me several times. And he said to me, Janie, what about this new horse park? He said, well, he asked me, he said, did you know that Bruce Davidson won the individual gold medal at the world championships at Burley? I said, no, sir, I haven't received my weekly chronicle yet. And that's how the only way we know how things happen or what has happened, because of course there was no internet in 1974. Well, there may have been, but not for us common folk. And so he, um, he said, well, what about this horse park? And I looked at him and I said, you are so right. How in, how smart you are. And so I ran with it because I was at the time executive director of the Kentucky Horse Council. So I went to my council, my, the, my people who had been appointed by the governor, and um, broached the subject to them. Well, none of them knew what a venting was. But they said, well, we we understand what you're saying and that you know all this stuff about different horses and blah, 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 blah. Said, but we'd like some backup. Some other people just, and I said, okay, fine. I said, what if I get some people and we ride the horse park who know eventing and they, you know, so we did that. I got five of my best friends and we rode the horse park and they said, yes, this would be perfect. And I can remember sitting with, or sitting on my horse became the, event director for the world championships in 78 saying, look at that sinkhole. I hope your readers know what a sinkhole is. Kentucky is built is on limestone and limestone after a period of time dissolves. And then these huge sinkholes, what happened at the Corvette plant, some historic Corvettes got dumped into the hole. I said, but look at that sinkhole. Wouldn't that be a cool jump? She said, yes, it would. I won't do it. And I said, I won't either, but they would. So we went back and the horse council agreed. So we went to the governor and and proposed it. And who was governor at the time? Wendell Ford was governor at the time. And he said yes. And he put it over into the parks department and off we all went. And October 1974 was October 4th. I'll never forget the date was when the groundbreaking ceremonies were for the Kentucky Horse Park. And Governor Ford, being the governor, was uh, going to be there. Was off, And 
the idea was, well, the idea of presenting all the different breeds and things that were in activities that were in Kentucky, that became the horse parks parade of breeds. But also they wanted him to ostensibly do the groundbreaking by digging a furrow with a um, pair of horses. So I found somebody who had horses. And uh, in fact, his daughter lives four miles from me now. He brought these two two horses and was not about to touch them. He was going to, you know, stand next to Governor Ford and Governor Ford was going to put his hands on the, and he was going to go on, or not the hand, but whatever you call those things. I don't know that much and um but governor ford pushed him aside took a hold of the plow clucked to the horses and off they went and i looked at him and i said i didn't know you could do that and he said i was raised on a farm went, oh okay <laughs> fine it was a huge coup for for him to do that it was just great um so anyway we opened the we opened the construction of the horse park and it was of course changed and all this stuff and Museum. There was already a racetrack, a standard red training track on the farm. That was one reason why it was bought. Uh, the family it was a family farm, and the family had some differences, and so it was split up. And this area, this part of the park, or the, the property, was for sale. So the state bought it in 1972. Then in '74 they started the construction. So Captain Desine had said to me about the World Championships, and I said you know, how did we get the right? And he said, well, because Bruce Davidson, at, at the time, this was how it worked for the world championships. The gold medal individual winner, his country had the right to host the next one. So that's what happened. Bruce, of course, the team won the gold too, but Bruce won the individual gold and gave us the right to host it. And I said, okie dokie, off we go. So apartment and the horse council worked together to put on out this proposal. Now, other places who knew who had had more events than we had. We had low level events in Kentucky, but nothing big. And everybody thought well, how crazy for this to happen. But our proposal was considered and the American Horse Shows Association, which is now the U.S. Equestrian Federation, sent their president, their chairman of the board, and two or three of their board members down to review the park itself. Well, at the time, Governor Ford had gone on to be a senator, and his lieutenant governor became governor. And so we had the American Horse Shows Association people down, had them at lunch, blah, 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 put them in a van of the Parks Department. And Governor Carroll came to talk to him. Well, Governor Carroll didn't know anything about eventing, and he didn't, you know, he knew about horses, to be honest. But we stopped on state on Ironworks Pike above the interstate, right there by the horse park where you can see on top because it's a hill. You can see almost all the horse park from there. And he and I got out of this van. And in five minutes, I told him about the farm, where it came from, what the sport of eventing was, the world championships. He got back in that van. And this, I swear to God, this is what turned it. You'd have thought he'd been born on that farm and been eventing all his life. It was just incredible. And of course, that's why he was governor. He became governor. He was elected the next year or the next time he was open. Um, it was because he could just absorb all this stuff and then spew it right back out as if he'd known it all his life. I was very impressed.
Of course, it should be, but it was. So anyway, our bid was accepted. And so off we went to find a course designer who turned out to be uh, Roger Haller and set up a board, called a quest, which I called Equestrian Events, Inc. And um, we got people from around the area, not just eventing people, because we've been able to fill a, a board of 23 with eventers, but at the time we did not. And the gentleman who became, who was the, the high hope steeplechase, which first run at the horse park in 74, it had moved from high hope farm to the park. He just became so excited about it. He couldn't stand it. And he is the one, in my opinion, who got this thing done because he got sponsorship and went in a lot of money, but he got all these sponsors and he, he strong armed people to do it. And in the end, it made money and we paid. I was the chief dressage steward um, for the first eight years of it. And um, I'll never forget this. this is one of my funny stories. We also, we did the National Day in 1977. And what became Young Riders is now the, whatever it's called now, that it was used to be Young Riders Championships, which was our first three-day at the park. And for the National Pony Club Rally, I had to set five dressage arenas. And these five dressage arenas were very heavy. They were a, a USET, U.S. Equestrian Team design. I think Roger Haller probably designed them. And... My secretary at the Kentucky Horse Council at that time didn't know anything. And so she got very tired after we, and I had other people help, but, but it was basically the two of us that set these five arenas. And she came up with, it was the business of the letters. And she said, well, they make no sense. And I said, no, you're right. They don't. And she said, well, how come they're where they are? Don't know. Well, who created that? Don't know. Nobody knows. And so she said, well, I can't stand this. I can't have to think about it and have a diagram and all this. She said, FIP berm. I said, what? She said, F-P-R, FIP berm, F-P-B-R-M. Okay. She said, that's the right side if you're sitting at the judge's thing. Okay. Well, if you do FIP berm, then RSVP fits right across. Anyway, that's what I've used all my all my competitive life in setting dressage arenas is fifth berm. <laughs> There's so, a lot of people out there thinking that uh, is the way to remember it right now. Um, so, so what were those well, first world championships like? Because it's a tight enough turnaround, you know, four years from the first ground being broken really in the build-up, less than four years to when the, the championships uh, took place. What were they like and how did they unfold compared to, to what you expected? Well, should I say that it was hell? Okay. <laughs> because, well, it was, I mean, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew we could do it. And we just did it. I mean, Edith Conyers and I slept with the FEI rules by our beds. And anytime we woke up, we'd spend a half an hour reading so that we knew the rules backward and forward. We knew what it needed to be. People went to badminton and burley. I unfortunately did not um, to learn how they did things, and they were very gracious to us. And in 
telling us how to do it and all that. And we had, we put on the first horse trials in, in 76, and it was just an advanced horse trial. My funny story was the five dressage arenas for the Pony Club Rally, National Pony Club Rally. I would get in the judge's house and after we'd put it, we'd put the judge's house in place and look, you know, put the judge's house at, at, um, see and say, okay, this is fine. This, well, I got four of them done perfectly. The fifth one was a parallelogram and it was Jimmy Wofford's arena. He was the judge of that arena. And I went, Oh my, and I didn't know Jimmy Wofford at the time, except who he was. And I went, Oh no, one of my idols. I can't, uh, so, and you can't take a, a parallelogram dressagerine and just move it around. You have to do it all straight from the beginning. But that one was, I was going, oh, Lord, I got four out of five done. <laughs> Here we go. And so the everybody that was helping me was moaning a lot. But we got it all done. Okay, so, so we come to 1978. And it was a, a combo of the state and a question of it's that put it on at the horse park uh, and the horse park people, because they were just, you know, they did all the physical stuff and everything, putting in the houses and doing all the things we had to do. And you will have some questions to ask me that I won't cover, um, but I'll know the answer, I hope. And so Prince Philip was coming. Oh, that was scary because he was president of the FBI at the time. And we had the National Guard. As our, they had the radios. We had internal radios, but as far as any problems or anything, it was the National Guard. And so each one of us who was a chief steward had a National Guardsman and his radio attached to us. And of course, it almost killed them. And we had the National Guard helicopters, our medevac. And, you know, I mean, we didn't do things like everybody had, but we'd gone to the 76 Olympics in Canada, in Montreal. And of course, the eventing was in Magog, Magog. And I mean, the dressage, I watched their dressage and I patterned my dressage on theirs because how it was set up and this and that and the other, because I thought it was pretty good. And it, we still use the way the the people do the closing the arena, which is one of my big bugaboos. I want people to always still do that. And they don't. But they do it bad bit to Burley and the other four five stars. Um, so here we go. <laughs> we're going to do it. And we did it. And it worked. There were some problems, of course, like uh, Edith Conyers on Saturday of cross country gets on the radio and she said, Janie, there's no hose at the 10 minute box. I went, I'll be right there because I had hoses to hose. the. the we didn't have automatic waters at the time. So I had, or a water truck. So I had hoses, and I at the time, I learned how to use a fire hose. And let me share with you, don't ever put your legs over a fire hose and have somebody turn it on because it's like a buck and bronco. <laughs> um, oh, I and I was very light then, so I was up in the air at one point yelling and screaming. <laughs> this was before the event itself when I first used them because I had to water two warm-up arenas, which are now barns five through seven, and then the final warm-up arena and the fire hoses. It was a lot of fun, but I was cool. So we we had the National Guard, and, and at the time, there were two judges on the short side and one on the long side. 
and I'm a very uh, symmetrical person. So I put a third house there and gave that to Prince Philip. And like I say, we had some problems and we had some problems the next year when U.S. or well, now, well, now USEF asked us to put on a fall event. And so we started with that. And then they asked us to do a spring event. So we moved to the spring. But the, the, we had over 100,000 people over the four days. We had 50,000 people. I don't know where they all came from. Um, and what was funny was at the time, of course, as I said, there were no computers. So we did all the ticketing. Everybody was involved in ticketing. And we did all the ticketing and the mail out and everything by hand. It was sort of incredible that it got done, but it did. I mean, and, and it, we really never had any bad problems. Maybe it's because we were didn't know enough to know that there could be problems, but we just did what had to be done. You know, we I had a thousand volunteers then, as we do now. We have more than that now. And they are, you know, I've always said it's the volunteers. If you don't have the volunteers, you don't have an event. And you take good care of them and thank them. That amount of people at an event in those days, you know, that would be a huge number now. But, you know, everything, getting places is a lot more accessible. That is just an absolutely extraordinary showcase for eventing in the state of Kentucky at that time. Um, You've mentioned people, and I'm going to come back to people because I think that's been a huge part of your success and and your leadership and being able to manage and get the best out of people, which is why I think, you know, you look back at that 78 and you think, how do we do it? But that is, that is how you did it because the team of people that you, you had around you, you will work together to be able to, to create this incredible event and experience. I wanted to, to pick up on, you were chief dressage steward for, for I think eight years before you took over as director of Equestrian Events Inc. Was that in 1984? How was that transition for you? Because obviously you'd been involved from the very, very beginning and, and had sort of seen this event flourish and grow. What was it like and what did it mean to you to actually step up to that role in 84? Well, it was just a natural progression, I think. Uh, Edith retired in 1980, Edith Conyers, who was the event director, retired in 19, and her assistant took over and ran the event in 84, and then she said, I don't want to do this anymore, it's too much work. And at the time, the Kentucky Horse Council, which was a state agency, was no longer funded by the state of Kentucky, and so I was out of a job. And I'd been on the board, and I'd helped, you know, in every capacity, for long, and the president said, oh, would you like to come and be the event director? And I had run horse trials, but never anything of that magnitude. But the beauty of it was that Edith Conyers and her staff were, were excellent people to organize something like this, and her top assistant came with me. Another of her assistants had done, I mean, all the volunteers were on three-by-five cards. And they'd update them. Every, you know, this was, I mean, Virginia Kane was a database herself. And um, Edith, they kept these books, big three-ring binders of everything they did. So all I had to do was if I didn't, well, number one, I took her books and I put them by my bed at night and would read them. 
But if there was a question in my mind as to, oh, my God, how do you do this? For example, spectators. I didn't know much about dealing with spectators. I'd go to their books and read the books. I have no idea where the books are today. (laughs) I hope they're somewhere in the office. But that was how 1985, for me, went seamlessly. Because I had these books to refer to. And, I mean, they were detailed. So, you know, I, I... got my backup from very good people who had run a successful event. But when I came, Edith, Edith worked, I think eight months out of the year because she was the event director. EEI was run in other ways. Well, when I came, I said, excuse me, but I need a job that's 12 months out of the year. And I said, plus, They had sort of frittered away a lot of the money that they had made after paying back the state. And so they needed money and sponsorship and this and that and the other. And I said, I'll do all that if you give me a 12-month job. And they did. And by then, computers had come along. So I got a computer. They gave me a computer and and went with that. And then I had one other person in the office full-time and one temporary person doing tickets. Now, of course, it's a a full-time job for at least one person at the park, I mean, at at EEI, Um, and it's so big now that, you know, they have a lot of people. But also, I have to say, in my defense, and and, um, Beverly, who was my secretary and who had worked for EEI, we'd work 24 hours a day, seven days a week on this thing, which, which doesn't happen now. So when I retired in 2010, they hired four people to do my job, to do what I did. Let me put it that way. Of course, I had a horse that wasn't ever going to go high, but could have gone higher and we went because I didn't have time to ride. And I've never married and have no children. The horse park and and the three-day event are my children. But, you know... It's my passion. It's, it became my passion. It might not have been because I was a saddlebred person, but it became my passion. And I loved it. So, and that's, and most of the people that have ever, well, all the people that have ever worked there, if they don't love it in the beginning, if they're not horse people or event people in the beginning, they be, they do love it after working there for six months because it's just something that gets in your blood and you're so proud of it. Looking back now, that obviously the legacy that you have have created and left, not only for the horse park, but for eventing, for US eventing, eventing globally, is is huge, absolutely enormous and not to be underestimated. Um, a, a massive part of that was the introduction of four-star competition as it was, then five-star competition as it is now, in 1998. Up until that point, there was only Babington and Burley over it here in the UK. There wasn't another five-star. We've obviously had the likes of Poe, of Lemoulin, Adelaide, uh, and now most recently Maryland, um, you know, come on to the five-star roster. But at that point, it was very much... Babington and Burley and that was it. Talk us through bringing four-star and now five-star to the U.S. because that has been a pivotal point in the Kentucky Horse Park history. Well, you're right. It has been becoming a four-star. And at the time when we became a four-star, it was only Badminton and Burley. So there were only the three of us. Now, I have to say that we have been looked down our nose at 
or we were years ago, looked down our nose at because we're the U.S. I don't know why, but it, it was that way because, I mean, Burley started, I mean, badminton started in 49, Burley in 61, so they were older, and badminton's the granddaddy of them all, and I've always said, I'm not in competition with them because if I rode, I'd want to go there too. I'd want to get through badminton, good grace, or if I rode at that level. But in 1992, I wanted a new course designer. I wanted my course designer. And I didn't know course designers or anything. The only person I really knew was Wolfgang Feld, who had been the TD for the 78 World Championships. So there was a candidate, I mean, in, in my mind. And Roger Haller suggested, who also was a course designer, but a U.S. course designer, and I wanted a foreign one, because... You know, we're here across the pond and the biggies are over there and our, but our people cannot go over. Not everybody can go over there, over across the pond to badminton and Berlin and, and get that experience. So my point was, we need to have an event that foreign, we can get foreign riders to come to so that our people can ride against them. And if you look at the history of who wins, it's those few foreign riders that come over here. So our people are getting experience without having to spend the money that they don't have to get over there. So I, I said the, the guts of the whole thing is the course, is the course design. People will travel even across the pond to go, because there wasn't prize money at the time, to go and ride a, a good course designer's course. So in Ralph Hill, who I don't know if you know who he is, but Ralph was competed. He was the youngest. He placed something in the world championships and he and Mike Huber were the youngest riders. They were both 17, I think that rode in the world championships. Ralph been going for years and years and years. And Roger Haller, when I mentioned it to him, suggested Mike Etherington Smith. He said, you know, think about him. I said, well, I don't know him. And he said, okay, he said, and so anyway, I learned about him and didn't know him and brought Roger and Ralph to my Equestrian Events Board of Directors and let them talk about Mike Etherington Smith. And Ralph Hill was so, who as a horseman is highly respected and, and you know, rode everywhere. And he had ridden at Blenheim, which Mike was designing at the time, which was a three-star and he was so effusive about him, and Roger was so effusive about him, that I hired him sight unseen. Never having seen him, never having been to Blenheim. And he, and that's all he'd done, had been Blenheim. So I hired him. And the day he got off the plane in Cincinnati, and I've said this for many years, and that was in 1993, he was the first year that he designed, I knew it was the little brother I'd never had. And that was beautiful because, you know, you really need to have good vibes with your course designer. And I mean, we're friends to this day. And he was 93 and he retired the same he did the world championships course. And that is why, in my opinion, we became a four star because I th we had at the time and I knew it as soon as his first couple of courses came, that he was the best in the world. 
And there are people who will argue with me, but they can't. And he did his first Olympics from us, did his first world championships after he came to us. And because he's good and people wanted to ride his courses and his courses were at the time. I mean, we were a three star, but they were four star courses. They weren't because they're so horse friendly and he's so good at it. And I used to I mean, I would never attempt to design a course, but I learned a lot and I'd go out with him and I'd watch him and I could see him with his hands on a, invisible reins in his mind riding the fences he'd built and that or he designed and and of course we have and have always had one of the best course building teams in the world i'll never forget hugh thomas he, he said why do they build these fancy things and put all these flowers on them and everything of course you notice everybody does that now but we had and still have a course decorator who has a crew who are most, a lot of them are landscape designers in their own. And they do these wonderful, wonderful things because they've brought the spectators out because it's beautiful. And builders came and they were furniture builders. Now, our chief course builder, Mick Costello, had to say to these fellas, excuse me, we're not building furniture. We're building jumps. Yes, you can make them look nice, but they're jumps. Horses are going to jump them. But one of them was so artistic that the fish in the water, the geese, this and that, people didn't do that before we did it. And now that everybody does it. it, it adds, number one, from a spectator standpoint, but they're also eminently jumpable. And th so those are things that I think brought Kentucky to the fore to become a four-star. And we fulfilled all the Rolex, bless their heart, when we said we have to have $100,000 prize money because that was the minimum at the time for a four-star. They said, you've got it. Rolex was a wonderful sponsor, and I miss them to this day. And it was great for them because how many events in the world do you know know by the name of the title sponsor? I was going to say, you still call it Rolex. This is one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating. And again, kind of set the standard and, and led the way, paved the way in sort of commercializing eventing. Obviously, it was very much on your rad radar. When you took over the reins in 84, it, it, you know, it was part of your, your role to actually make sure that the horse park made money. Um, but to that sort of stronger branding and that strength of relationship with a sponsor that that lasts for so long and becomes so iconic and so intertwined with an event is incredibly special and incredibly rare. How important was that commercialization for the future of eventing and for the future of Kentucky? And I guess also your take on it moving forwards from here as to where we are now and, and the world in which we live in is changing slightly. Um, so two questions there, and I appreciate there's probably quite a lot on both of them. Start start with, with the relationship with Rolex and, and how special that was for the horse park. Uh, in 1981, the U.S., well, was it still HSA, whatever, USEF, I call it now, uh, USEF had gotten Rolex as a sponsor, and Rolex did show jump. And it was made, it was all all show jumping. Well, a, a gentleman there at Rolex wanted to branch out, 
And so he said to USEF, find me another event. And then when he said event, he said, what about this Kentucky three-day event? Because we didn't have a title sponsor in 1981. I mean, we were only three years out of the uh, world championships. So they came to EEI, who is the independent organizer, and said, would you want to talk to Rolex about a sponsorship? I said, yes, certainly we would. <laughs> Why not? I mean, everybody knew what a Rolex watch was. And they also knew what the Rolex girls were, if you've ever heard that joke. Um, the Rolex girls were, they'd steal Rolex watches from gentlemen. So we we talked with Rolex. Now, the sponsorship came through USEF. So our the sponsorship money came to us from USEF, but it was Rolex's money had quite a bit of say on where things went, you know, banners and this and that and the other. But we and we'd go each year in the fall to New York, which was a pretty cool thing to do anyway. As event director, as I said, I wasn't shy. I'm not shy about my horses or horse things. And so I would ask them for money. I would go, I would directly ask Rolex, not go through USEF, which no one really liked except me. And you, Rolex didn't mind. And so I'd ask them for this and that and the other. And they, you know, for specific things like um, a rider travel allowance. And they agreed to that and those sort of things. And they, they were just excellent. They would do just pretty much anything for us. I mean, you know, they didn't give us goo gobs of money, but USEF, of course, part of the money that they got came to us. And so anything additional that we wanted, Rolex had to pay USEF. But in my mind, I mean, I never had a problem with them. I had a person that I would, would be my liaison. And sometimes we are most of the times it was, yeah, we'll do that. Oh, okay, fine. You can have that. They they were an excellent sponsor, and part of it had nothing to do with either one of us. The word Rolex, it just fit Rolex Kentucky, and I always put Kentucky in there because I didn't want people to. And I I still call it would call it Rolex Kentucky, though people would just call it Rolex, and it's the the name that it just works for the name of an event because it was it was I think about the only sporting event that was known by the name of its sponsors. It can't get much better than that. And they'd go, yeah, you're right. Although one of the negatives of it was that to a, a, the generation after that, Rolex was the name of a horse event, not a watch. <laughs> we had to keep reminding people of that. But it was. It was excellent for Rolex. And I'm sorry we lost them. Or I'm sorry they had to go another route. But Land Rover's good, too. and of course, Land Rover's Burley, and they were not before they sponsored us. They realized that it was a spectator sport as opposed to show jumping. People will go to the big, big show jumping ones, but but even small events can capitalize on the number of people for sponsorship, the number of people that, that are there. And, I mean, England has no has known that for 100 years. Um, well, since 1949, I guess. Rolex was just, it was a great sponsor. They didn't over-ask, and we were partners with them. 
Partners is the word there, Janie. I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head in so much as you worked very hard for them, but ultimately they they trusted your vision and they came through for you guys as well. It, it's a relationship that, as I, as I said, is pretty rare in the sporting world. And in equestrian sport, that was something that was uh, rare at the time and actually really sort of set the example and paved the way for commercialization in eventing. Um, where are we now in comparison to obviously, you know, the economic climate has changed and, you know, things have altered in some ways. In other ways, it's a lot easier to commercialise our sport with the the sort of the increase in live stream activity and that kind of thing. You know, people become are a lot more used to consuming information online and social media and everything else. What are your thoughts on the sports commercial side today and how we can make best of that moving forwards? Well, I think we need to give them, to give sponsors and with them that this is what they receive is the number of people who come to the events and who watch the events live stream, as you say, to get the name out to the most number of people. That's that's what sponsorship is. And you want to introduce and keep in their minds the name of the sponsor, which is why you have title sponsors and presenting sponsors. And and I think, you know, the problem, the smaller events, which need money because always going to cost money to build and you need to change them. And I'm talking from the grassroots up that even with just the number of people who are associated with an individual horse, that's a market and anybody can capitalize on that if they think about it and think about themselves and commercials they watch and what they listen to. I mean, well, I was raised by an advertising executive, so I still watch commercials on TV as opposed to scrolling through, but no longer do we have of people who can afford to put on events. And you can't bung the riders for all of it. You've got to come up with other sources. They Everybody has to come up with other sources. And they can do it. They just have to find a, a good person who thinks that way. And they, they're out there. I mean, they'll do it as a volunteer. You know, I thought, well, when I retire, I'll be a consult on this. And No, I've enjoyed in retirement too much, so I haven't done it. <laughs> it's a well-earned retirement, Jamie. It's well-earned. I mean, I think sponsorship is is extremely important for the lower levels because that's the only way they are ever going to be able to foot the bill. Competitors can't. Owners can't. You know, they can't pay for everything. So these events, and I've I've done this in in talks before and everything. They've got to look at it, realize it's necessary, and go do it. And you can you can sell. Hey, when you see some of the things that are sold, you can sell almost anything. And and when you're looking at an event, I mean, you should try and get spectators because what's more exciting than cross-country day? And and you don't have to have them pay necessarily, at, you know, at the lower levels. Get them out there so that you can say to sponsors, we have all these people coming and watching, not just the people that are here. So it doesn't always have to be a, a horse-oriented thing. You, you can make it for anything if you use your head and 
use your imagination. That's to me, that's that's the future of eventing. I mean, look at England. England's done it for years with the small horse trials. Not small horse trials, but with regular horse trials. They've all got somebody. I think you make a very, very valid point on that. And I think it's something that that a lot of people take on board. Um, I wanted to to touch on the people aspect of it. I know I said it earlier on in this show, and it's something that I think it cannot be underestimated how important it is to to recognize that actually, you know, your success and the way you you led the Kentucky Horse Park and and made things happen even in the first instance was your ability to inspire and lead other people and recognize how important their role can be as well. Just talk to me a little bit about making the dynamics of that work because a thousand volunteers is absolutely enormous. And, you know, we've had people on this show and also on the eventing podcast. And we, we've talked about some of the amazing stories from Kentucky and those people like Mick Costello, Sheila Worth, who have been involved at the event for so many years and they'll leave their own legacy and have created their own legacy. But how how do you make that happen? How does that culture come about? And what is, I'm going to say, what is the magic ingredient? Or is, is Janie, are you the magic ingredient here? What What was your secret? Well, and I think I just went along and, and maybe expanded on what the original group had done. Know your people. Now, the, and the way they did it, and I said there's no reason to change this, is they had chief stewards, chief dressage stewards, chief cross-country steward, chief toe jumping. And what they did and what I did was you have your chiefs, and sometimes you inherit them and you want to get rid of them, but at works too, you can do it. And you let them get their people. I'm, I am reasonably against this, all the volunteer uh, program because you don't know the people. But the chief steward, if they get their people, they know their people. And you as the event director need to know as many of them as you can. You go face to face with them. And when they have their briefings, uh, you stop on course and thank them. And I'm talking as an event director. But the chief stewards, at least our chief stewards, they take ownership of their job, ownership of their people. And they get their people. And, they, I mean, you can put, you can have them send you the names and put them in the volunteer program on the computer. But people have to know them. They can't be a face that you don't know when you see them. Now, there's many faces that I don't remember and many names that I didn't remember. But also another thing was, and this is the way it goes now, is I would type the copy for the program, which means I typed every name of every volunteer. So those names, those names still come back to me because I remember the names. And and I knew who people were, and I would thank them. Then we... It got too big for me to sign every thank you letter, but we used to send everybody a thank you letter. Now it's done. Vanessa, who's the event director for the competition people, she does it via email. But I signed every one of those letters and on a whole lot of them wrote little notes. You don't have time to do that anymore, especially not with a thousand and they have more than that now. But it's it's the personal, and that's what was so great when we began. You know, we were a family. We knew 
each other and we knew everybody and everybody did everything that needed to be done, whether it was their job or not. And so that's, I mean, we've lost as far as volunteers are concerned and event directors, the personal aspect of going around and meeting the people and this and that and the other. I know for the world championships in 78, what I did, of course, eventing was the first thing. So I was free after that. And I made brownies. I'm famous for my brownies. And I took them around to the security people because all they ever got was a sandwich and a bottle of water in the morning. And so I'd go around it in my gator with my brown. I was so sick of brownies. I couldn't stand it. But I'd go around and, and that's what the people need. That's what they like. I'd go around during the event and check on the people and make sure everything was okay. They were happy. Did they need a potty break? No, but there's no toilet paper in the potties. Well, okay, I'll go to my car and get the, get my spare rolls because I'd always carry. That's one of the most important things an event director can do. Carry toilet paper in wherever they are, in their gator or in their golf cart or whatever. Because the porta potty people can't be there at every instance. You just have to think of the little things to take care of the people. And then they appreciate it. And I guess you take care of the little things and the little things take care of the, the big things. Um, I love the family aspect that's, as well. I think that's, that's such true. an important part of, of eventing. Can I just um, very quickly ask you about Kentucky in 2010 uh, and the last World Equestrian Games that were held there? Because it was, again, an amazing showcase um, of our sport and for, for equestrian sport as a whole in the state of Kentucky. But having been through everything in the build-up to 78 and then 2010, how did it compare? I'm hoping it was slightly less like hell, as you said earlier on in this show, but how was 2010 for you? Because you had a a slightly different role there, but you headed up the eventing for the World Championships. Well, for me, it was easy as pie because I was the eventing and it was just another Rolex and all the people were Rolex people, you know, and so they carried it off. I mean, on cross-country but on dressage day and on show jumping day as event director, I was basically superfluous because the chiefs took care of it and did it. And so it was just, you know, we had Mike as the course designer, which why would you not have the best in the world at the world championships, even if you had an American. So it wasn't hard at all. It was a very, very well-oiled machine by that point. Um, There have obviously been, so many highlights over the years. Um, but are there any sort of competition moments or memories that stand out for you above the others, Janie? Not that I can remember now. As soon as we hang up, yes, I will. But I do. I do, would like to tell one funny story because it's educational as well. In that in 2000, I don't remember what year it was. I know 2004 was when we had full three-day, which... Um, Dan won, and the Olympic format, which Windfall won. Well, Windfall, as you may or may not know, Mr. Legs' daddy, and he is a Tricaner stallion. And it was the, it was, I think it was the year before, but he, he, we, and we still had the full three day, 10 minute box, the whole works. And they'd come to the 10 minute box, and he and Darren Cha Cha, his, his, uh, rider, took off into the draft horse field for the first fence. And on the third fence, he pecked on landing, I think. And anyway, Darren came off and windfall was free. 
And he came roaring back, this is Stallion, remember, roaring back into the 10-minute box and was going around there, you know, raising, raising his head and <laughs> snorting and everything, going, where's a miracle? I'd like to see one. And everybody there, as you well know, in a 10-minute box are grooms, riders, some owners, and they're chasing him, trying to catch him. Well, the 10-minute box did have fence around it, but there was one area that was just roping. It's heading for this, and I'm going, this horse is going to get caught, and he can jump, but he might not clear it all the way, and he's going to get tied up, and blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, and, and I'm looking at these people going, they're running after this horse. He's a stallion. What, what do they think they're doing? They're supposed to be horse people. They're grooms. They're riders. They're supposed to know what they're doing. So suddenly I just couldn't stand anymore. And I yelled at the top of my lungs, everybody stop. And they all did. And so did Windfall. (laughs) I said, no. Never forget it. And there was, I said, now one person, one, walk slowly up to him. His name is Windfall, if you don't know. Chit chat with him as you're going there. And they did it. They caught him and. Darren said, thank you, God. <laughs> but it was so funny. It was all these people who are supposed to know what they're doing with horses, and they're chasing a runaway stallion. I'm going, oh. But I loved it when the horse stopped, too. I knew the people would, but I wouldn't hear about the horse. That was an added bonus, an added bonus, Janie. Uh, look, Janie, yeah. honestly, I could talk to you for hours because the stories you have on Kentucky are just absolutely incredible. Um, and, and your relationship with the venue is just extraordinary in itself. And it's really, as I said at the start of the show, I don't think we can underestimate just how much you have done for not only for, for Kentucky three-day event, but US eventing, eventing as a whole, organizers all over the world in paving the way and and setting the standard. So on behalf of everybody, thank you, because it has been a lifelong passion. You use that word yourself. um, And I'm sure there have been so many blood, sweat and tears along the way, but we really appreciate it. And uh, it is a pleasure to see you in the the USCA Hall of Fame. I was gobsmacked. I learned that term from Mike, but I was. I had no clue. And I'm very honoured, very, very honoured to be with people who I have idolized all through the years. It is enormously, enormously deserved, J.D. I really cannot stress that enough. Um, listeners, we, we hope you have enjoyed a little insight into what ha- what has been an absolutely extraordinary career for Janie, but has, as I said, really revolutionized the sport of eventing in the US and really driven it forward. And that is what the Hall of Fame is all about. It is the the highest honor that any person in eventing in the US can be, can be given. There's 47, 48 uh, now with Janie in, included as well. We're heading towards the 50 and we'll have more shows coming up for you later this year as they are announced. But it is an absolutely incredible group of people. And Janie, it is a pleasure to have you among them. And thank you so much, as I say, for talking to us today and sharing your story. Uh, listeners, we will have lots more coming your way on the USCA official podcast, including some more Hall of Fame shows later on in the year. We are building up. It's not that too far until the AECs, the American Eventing Championship will be upon us before we know it and of course we have got the world championships in protoni to look forward to as well but for now that is all we've got time for a big thank you to janie for her time but also to you guys for listening as always (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the USCA official podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback, then we would love to hear from you. Get in touch through any of our social media platforms at US Eventing. And don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to make sure you don't miss an episode.